If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. So that would be in, our, in the blue Bibles in front of us, page 828. So it's Matthew 22, 41 to 46. And so what we've been doing, we're in the finishing up a chapter where people have just been arguing with Jesus. People who don't like Jesus, they don't trust Jesus, they've been trying to trap him with different questions. And what's amazing is how Jesus has been able to just escape their arguments. How he's been able to argue for the reality of the resurrection, how to deal with a corrupt government, pay your taxes, uh, how to live lovingly in God's world. All these things. And so this morning, if you come to the, our passage, this is the first time where Jesus actually gets to fire back, right? Everybody's been asking him questions, trying to get him to slip up. Now Jesus asks a question. And this is an argument, a debate. And when he asks a question, no one can answer it, and everyone stops asking questions. It blows their mind. It's category-busting. Um, this is Jesus arguing for why you should believe in him. And it's aimed at those who have doubts and questions. And it's also an argument for us as Christians who are afraid, who have fears and anxieties. So let's, let's read this argument, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll look at what Jesus says. This is God's word. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given to us in love. Uh, let's pray. Our Father God, I ask now that you would do more, uh, more than we can imagine as we look at Jesus, to strengthen our faith, to challenge our doubts, but also to fill our vision with Jesus, the conquering king and compassionate friend, uh, the high priest who prays for us. And so... I ask that you would forgive my sins and, and that you would help me uh, speak clearly so that we would hear the gospel and be led to repentance and deeper love for our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Bertrand Russell, I don't know if you've heard of him. I've quoted him before. He's a, a famous atheist in the early 20th century. He wrote this essay in 1927 called Why I'm Not a Christian. And... And he just lists various reasons of why he doesn't believe in God in general and why he rejects Jesus in particular. And all throughout his life, he was known for saying, religion is nothing more than harmful superstition. I don't care that it makes you nice, it's harmful. And so someone actually had a, the bright idea to go up and ask Dr. Russell a question. He said, what if you die and you get to heaven and you find out you're wrong, that God is real? And God asks you, why did you not believe in me? What are you going to say? What's your response to God? And here's what Russell said, I'm paraphrasing here. Is God, you can't hold it against me because you didn't give us enough evidence. 
There's not enough evidence for a reasonable person to be a Christian. Therefore, it's not my fault, it's on you. You didn't give me enough proof. Which is a great question. What would you say? What kind of evidence or argument would it take for you uh, to give up everything and follow Jesus? Or Christian friends, what, what kind of proof or argument would it take for you to set aside your fear and really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he's in control? And what's interesting in our culture, this is how we approach this idea of should I be a Christian or not? Because some of us are like Bertrand Russell. I won't believe unless I can have something concrete to see. I've got to be able to touch it. I've got to be able to test it. I need a clear logical argument. I want a clear philosophical reason. I want to be able to outsmart and out-argue everyone to know that Jesus is true. That's how some of us think. Some of us are the opposite where we say we, we want proof, but it's much more experiential. Right? I want God to show himself. In my life, I want him to fix my problems. I want him to fix my kids, my spouse. Fix, you know, give me a, a job, pay my bills. Do some kind of miracle to show me that God is real. But both ways do this thing. I say, I refuse to believe. I will not trust unless I have proof. And what's fascinating is that Jesus is in a conversation in our passage with people who, who are doubters, to say the least, These are the ones who will kill him, who will crucify him. Jesus is debating with his enemies. And look at how Jesus argues. What is the rock-solid way, the rock-solid argument to go to war, to, to, to debate, to argue against our unbelief? How does Jesus confront our lack of faith? That's what we're going to look at this morning. How does he convince us and work on convincing us that the gospel is true? Right, and so let's look at these. They've got three points. You can find the outline in your bulletin. But the very first thing Jesus does is when he comes to skeptics, for people who don't trust, he comes with questions. This is how Jesus operates all the way through the Gospels. Jesus is always confronting our skepticism, our doubts, with questions for us. All right, and so you can read it in verses 41 to 46. He asks the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Uh, it's a technical term. It's, it's a Greek term for the Messiah. And say, what do you think about him? Whose son is he? And most people in Jesus' day believe that the Bible promised a coming king, a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. And this Messiah would be sent by God. He would be a human king. He's going to conquer God's enemies. He's going to right everything that is wrong with the world. He's going to fix what's broken in creation. He's going to set up a new world full of peace and justice. So that's the picture that Jesus is speaking into. It's a particular argument in a particular culture. Jesus is saying, all right, you have this idea that the Messiah is a human king. Whose son is he? Whose son is the Messiah? What family tree does he belong to? This is... Right, for us, if you ask a question in church, the answer is usually Jesus. It's a safe way to go. For the, the Jews in their day, if you want the softball question, the Sunday school question, if you're going to ask whose son is the Messiah, everybody knew David. Right? David was an easy answer. And so these, the Pharisees, they heard that. They knew that the Messiah would be David's ancestors. You can find it all the way through the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7, for example, promises that David will have a son. Uh, 
the Christmas passages, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. This king will come. And so it was easy. They answered, gave the right answer. They said, David, and then Jesus. This is the, the question that, that really messes with their heads. He says, all right, well, here's Psalm 110. How can David, in the spirit, this is God's word, call the Messiah Lord? And I know that's weird <laughs> to us. It's, a, it's not a... Psalm 110 is probably not our favorite devotional passage to go to, though it should be. Maybe it will be when we're done. But it's a brilliant question. Right? If David calls the Messiah Lord, right, how is the Messiah also David's son? If the Messiah is merely human and David's distant son, why would David honor him like an even greater king and lord and master? Because in their culture, a son would call his dad Lord as a sign of respect. But never the other way around. It's just unheard of. So why would King David, who's on top of the world, with no one above him except God, submit to someone else? That's Jesus' question. Because who is greater than the greatest earthly king apart from God himself? And the Pharisees just can't answer the question. How can the Messiah be anything other than human? They don't have a category for a Messiah who would be divine, like Jesus, God and man. And this is why they ask no more questions, because Jesus, right, Jesus says, what he does just through one question say, you think you know what I'm like, but I am much more complex than what you can imagine. I'm more nuanced. I'm more than human. Right here in Psalm 110 in Matthew, Jesus claims to be divine with a question. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But here's what I think is helpful to learn from as we're in this chapter of Jesus arguing. How does Jesus interact with skeptics and doubters? We're called to be witnesses of the resurrection as Christians. We live in a, in a culture where not everybody's a Christian. Maybe you are here trying to figure out who Jesus is. How does Jesus go to work on, on your doubts and your questions? And what he does is fire back at you. <laughs> we come with questions. God, what's wrong with this world and me? Jesus fires back, well, who do you say that I am? Right? And so it's just a helpful practice to learn not to come to people with lectures and sermons, but to come with questions. Because when Jesus has the opportunity to, to make an argument for why you should believe in me, he doesn't preach. He does it elsewhere, but not here. Nor does he make an abstract philosophical argument like you're in, in your college 101 class. You know, here's the reasons why you must believe. Right? He doesn't pull out the ancient Greek argument of the unmoved mover. I'm going to do some philosophy with you for a moment. So bring your brain along with me. It shouldn't be too bad. It's just, just this idea. If you look at the world, everything has a cause. Right? And so if you, if you pull out your best in, uh, impression of a two-year-old, and just ask why to everything. Why is that here? Where did that come from? Why, why, why? Eventually you go back all the way to the beginning and then you say, why are we here? Where did we come from? If everything in this world has a cause, why are we here? How is it you are here? And the, and the argument goes, well, there must be something eternal, something that created us, the first cause, the unmoved mover, and what the early Christians did with that argument is said, 
Well, we're going to give that cause a name. His name is Jesus. It's God. See, Jesus doesn't do any of that philosophy. He asks questions. All right? Nor does Jesus use signs. Right? If you want to say, I want God to convince me that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one should come to God except through him, right? signs are there, they're helpful, but they're not the, the ultimate reason for believing. Right? He's tried that with the Pharisees before. He's raised the dead. He's healed the blind. He's cured the lame. And even you get to Matthew 28, um, people saw Jesus raised from the dead. Even some of Jesus' friends doubted. Right? Now, what Jesus does to argue with us, to, to draw us into relationship with him, is he starts to ask you questions. Who do you say that I am? Have you ever read about me in the scriptures? Do you have a clear picture of me? Do you even know who I am according to the scriptures? How is it that David calls the Messiah Lord? Do you really understand the scriptures as, as they, what they mean? And here's what's really helpful to see how personal God is when he comes alongside you and says, I want you to trust Jesus. Or Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller helped me see this. Because when I want to believe, I want to have, I'm a pastor, I'll just be honest. When I want to get in a conversation with an unbeliever, I want to have that trump card, right? Where you can just pull it out and say, here, study this. If you understand this, you'll be a Christian. Call me next week, and then we'll celebrate together, right? I just want to win. And that's not how Jesus functions, but just that attitude, I need to convince people, I need to use my wisdom, my, just my argumentation skills, that's a Western thing that we learned in school. Because we value education, we value logic, we're very Greek. Uh, you go on campuses, they're saying, you, in order to believe, it must be verifiable in a test tube, right? those kind of things. And so we're told if our friends are going to become Christian, we have to prove that our flying spaghetti monster is real. <laughs> But if you're from a non-Western culture, and some of you here are, that's not how the whole world thinks. That's just us. Because right? other people, us as well, but we want relational proof that God exists. Heal my child with malaria. And if my child gets better, I will worship you as a God who is bigger than malaria. Right? Prove to me that you have my back. And Jesus doesn't argue either way. He doesn't just pick one and use it all the time. I know this is, this is more lecture and, and whatnot, but think about this. The claim of Jesus is that he is the key that unlocks every human heart, regardless of what culture, tribe, tongue, or nation you are from. And for us as Westerners to say, Jesus, you must give me a rock-solid argument, um, a philosophical reason why I must believe a trump card, it's telling God, you must, you must think like me. It's culturally narrow to convince everyone to be Western. <laughs> in the same way, if we want God to, if I want to meet, let me try this again, in the same way for us to demand that God answers prayers the way I think he should answer them for me to believe that he is real. That's just as narrow. Right? Because if God doesn't answer your prayer for that job or a date like you're hoping for, does that mean he doesn't exist? No, it just means he said No. <laughs> So the question we have to ask is, if, why would the God of gods and the Lord of lords submit to our demands to convince us the way we think he should? 
right? Is he God or a personal assistant? And so here's the point of all this, and this is really encouraging. If Jesus uses questions to draw you in the way he does here with the Pharisees, it means he's going to relate to you as a person. Because he's not forcing everyone to be a philosophy major, right? which is good news. I slept through philosophy. <laughs> I wish I didn't. No, there, there are people smarter than me who have seen that there are at least six ways Jesus goes to work in your unbelief in the Gospels. He, he cultivates his love, his relationship with you, and he makes it personal. Right? Some of us are dealing with death, and we're afraid, and we're grieving. And so we come to Jesus saying, what do you have to say to me about the reality of death? How are you going to fix this? And Jesus asks you a question, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, and that I will hold your hand through death, and even after, for eternity? Right. Some of us come to Jesus because we're just drowning in our guilt and shame. We've done some horrible things. We hate ourselves, which is shame. Uh, we just feel bad because we know we've done something wrong, which is guilt. And then we hear Jesus ask us this question. What is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell the lame to walk? Jesus does both. Some of us are drawn to Jesus just because the Bible makes the most sense of this mess we call the world we live in. It's beautiful. That this way of life is more beautiful and makes sense of everything together than our, than our own understanding. Some of us come to Jesus looking for satisfaction. My life is, I'm just miserable. It feels like everything I try will not make me happy. And this is Jesus in John 4. Remember the interaction with the woman in the well? Right. How many husbands do you have? How many boyfriends do you have? How's that working out for you? Right. I have living water satisfaction that will give you permanent satisfaction. And Jesus comes with us problems. He says, do you want to get well? Right? These are more questions. Some of us come to Jesus looking for love. All of us do. That in an age of loneliness, we're told that God is love, who has never been lonely, and invites us into a relationship to be loved by God with an eternal love, the same love that Jesus has. See, all those are different ways to overcome your unbelief and my unbelief. See, Jesus has asked questions. Do you know how to do that? He's drawing you in through questions. And then second, what he does with the Pharisees, he's very specific. He asks questions about Scripture to, get, to help fix to help correct the, the Jesus we have imagined in our head. Right? We think we know what Jesus is like, and then Jesus says, well, have you read the scriptures? And that's what he's doing. He wants you to read and reread the Bible. Right? Have you ever read this before? He quotes a familiar psalm to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were Bible nerds. They, they would have known this psalm. They would have known it promises God's king. And Jesus shows them that their whole lives and for centuries they've just misread it. You had a picture of Jesus, just the Messiah being human, when he's fully human and fully divine. Right? Which, is, which is awesome, because what Jesus does is he's saying, I don't want you to just have a Jesus in your head that you imagine. Know that the Jesus that is, according to the scriptures, is a Jesus that people touched, a people that Jesus ate with, they saw with their eyes. He's real. But he's also from the beginning, and he was promised beforehand 
in the Old Testament. So you need the Bible. Right. And so what Jesus does, he says, do you understand what the Bible says about, about me? Right, Dick Lucas is a pastor that I listen to. He's a pastor in London. He, he, I occasionally listen to the sermons, and he says something. Someone wrote a, a, a commentary, a, a, not a commentary, a letter to the editor, sorry, in the London Times, and they, they said this in their, their letter. You know what? I would be happy to be a Christian if I had a watertight argument. I would gladly be a Christian if I had enough proof. It's very similar to Russell. And what Pastor Lucas responded with is he says, look, if you and I expect God to give us this rock-solid, watertight argument, you might as well just wait forever. Because in the scriptures, God doesn't give us a watertight argument. He gives us a watertight person. A person who is described in the Bible, who's better and more complex and more beautiful than anything our imagination could come up with. Right, so, talking to your friends, you've got to ask them questions. But you're asking them questions to consider God's perfect argument, Jesus, the perfect person. You see it? So we have to be able to ask both. Ask good questions. We have to be able to ask questions that get, draw people to interact with who Jesus actually said he was and is. Right, this is what Ronald Watson, it's in your bulletin, this quote. He said, when I read the Bible, I found that Jesus was full of surprises, but they were all the surprises of perfection. I found tenderness without being weak, strength without being coarse, lowliness without being servile. He had conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without Pharisaism, passion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step. No one yet has discovered the word that Jesus should have said. And so I'll just come, come to you this way. This, Jesus is asking you, are you willing to read the Bible to learn more about me as I am? Right. And if Christians, are you willing to have Jesus confront your doubt and fears, not just based, based on your feelings, but based on what he says about himself? In the scriptures, use the personal argument, use the person Jesus on your heart. Now, here's the second point. Jesus is confronting skeptics with a question, but he's also confronting us with personal arguments, which is really himself, the person. And what, this is what I want to do is really dig into what Jesus says here as he uses Psalm 110. He's using the watertight person. And you have to wrestle with what Jesus says about himself in this psalm. Because according to Psalm 110, the Messiah, Jesus, is David's Lord. What does that mean? I mean, right, Jesus' question is, who in the world can be both the human descendant of David and David's Lord? It's, a, it's not a, a cat, human category. Because they never thought that Jesus would come, that Jesus would be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the creator. He who was from the beginning to come and be touched and seen and hugged and interacted with. Right. And so let's wrestle with it. And it really helps to know that uh, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament 
chapter in the New Testament. Right? More than any other place in the Old Testament, when, when Jesus' friends, the apostles, thought of Jesus, they said the most helpful place that we can think of to help you know Jesus as he is, is Psalm 110. You'll find it in the Gospels. Paul talks about it all the time. You'll find it in the letter of Hebrews. It's in Revelation. It's everywhere. The whole New Testament really is structured on Psalm 110. This one question has been used to convince people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is both God and man, that he's true and real. And because there's a lot in Psalm 110, I mean, some people think have found the Trinity, the incarnation, that Jesus is divine and became human. They see his suffering, his resurrection, our sin, his ascension. He's always praying for us. I mean, they find the whole of Apostles' Creed, really, in Psalm 110. So I'm just going to pick a few. And here's the first one. Jesus wants the Pharisees to know that the Messiah is not just the son of David, he's also the son of God. He's fully human and fully divine. Jesus pulls out the doctrine of the Trinity right here. It's amazing. David in the Spirit says God, the Father, in the Spirit is talking about the Son. The Pharisees missed it. They didn't have a category for that. And so what Jesus is claiming right here, right now, that he wants us to, to see that the Jesus you worship is fully human and fully divine. He is David's literal human son. He's in that family tree. That's, that's what the Gospel of Matthew is arguing. But he's also the eternal but begotten son of the God who is, which means Jesus has always been He's always been the son. He's always been in a love relationship with God who is Father. Jesus is God himself coming to rescue and reign over us and redeem and renew all things. And here's how you get there. Because I know this is a weird way of thinking. This is not our normal... I don't think of Psalm 110 as being evangelistic, but it is. Because it's saying that David's Lord, the Messiah, Jesus is in God's throne room, sitting right next to God. We say this in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And and so the question that Jesus wants you to, to ask is, to what human being has God ever said, you are fully welcome in my presence? To be loved as I am loved, to be honored as I am honored, to have the authority to rule as I rule, to speak on my behalf, to act on my behalf. That's what it means to be at the right hand of God. All the way through the Bible, every person who's ever interacted with God said, you are too holy, and they fell down on their face like they were dead. And Jesus is treated like he's God. He's brought all the way in to God's presence. See, only a divine being could say all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. Jesus won't let you settle with the idea that he's just a good teacher who's going to teach you how to love. He's the Lord. He's God. He's he's your creator who loves you more than you can imagine. Second, how does this king who's God and man rule the world? And you get, go to Psalm 110, it's on page 509 in your Bibles. 
your design, this is when, when the New Testament quotes the Old, you're supposed to read the whole thing, the, the context. And in verse 2 of Psalm 110, it says, rule in the midst of your enemies. So that, that God's King Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies, and it's a weird, this is just a weird picture, but it's beautiful. It's God says to Jesus, I want you to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool, or your footstool. He's saying, I'm going to put everyone who is against me under your feet, right? This is humiliation. We do get this. If, you are, if you're an older brother, you've probably done this to your younger sibling, right? Where you put your feet on top of them to, to show them you're bigger and stronger. Maybe it was just me. But the way Jesus deals with his enemies, this is amazing. He's saying he's in the midst of his enemies. He's ruling and reigning over them. He's like a lamb among wolves. And this is radically different than the way the world runs things. Because kings and kingdoms work like this. If you had enemies, you slaughter them. You don't hang out with them. If there's a threat to your power, you don't let them move into the neighborhood. You kick them out. At minimum, you exile. At worst, the streets run with their blood. That's how it worked in the ancient world. It was bloody and violent. And so what this is saying is that Jesus rules the world spiritually among his enemies. And what does that mean? Who are Jesus' enemies? Well, it's all those who don't believe in him. I'm going to get blunt here. Because this is what the psalmist is saying. You are either God's former enemy and now friend through faith in Jesus Christ, living for him in his kingdom, or you're, or you're God's enemy living for yourself in your own kingdom. It's a doctrine of sin. To be called God's enemies because we don't love God who made us. We don't love our neighbor who is made in God's image. And so how does Jesus rule in the midst of his enemies? With grace and love to draw you in. Look at how he interacts with the Pharisees. He's not slaughtering them. <laughs> He's asking them questions, trying to turn his enemies into friends. These are the people who are going to crucify him. In chapter 23, he's going to say some hurtful things about them, but he weeps. He says, you're, you're evil, but you're breaking my heart. He weeps for his enemies, even those who would kill him. Chapter 27, Jesus dies for his enemies, for us, for all who would believe. Right? Romans 5, God shows his love for us that while we were yet enemies, Jesus died. And this is the clearest argument, <laughs> the clearest argument for the truth of Christianity. It's Jesus himself ruling and reigning in love in the midst of his enemies, trying to persuade his enemies to become his friends through his death, Christ crucified. All right. And he's continuing to do that right now. That within that idea of Jesus ruling over in the midst of his enemies is the great commission, the command for us to talk about Jesus with our neighbors as Christians. Right? Because what's his command? Love your enemies. That's Matthew 5. Pray for them. Serve them. Which means the way Jesus runs the world to convince people to believe is he puts non-Christians right next to you. <laughs> He's expecting you and I 
to have relationships with people who don't love Jesus, to live in their midst, to work with them, to love them, to serve them, to befriend them, to eat meals with them, uh, to go into all the world and make disciples, as Jesus would say. It's pretty astounding. The beauty of Jesus' kingdom, this is how it grows, is, is through enemy love. Because right? you get to verse 3 in Psalm 110, it's saying all those who are on Jesus' team, his army, are those who would offer themselves freely on the day of his power, on the day of his death. Everyone who follows Jesus is a willing volunteer. This is, they convert. They joyfully put their faith in Jesus. And so this is, this is what God is calling us to do, to ask our neighbors questions about Jesus, to love them, to serve them, to willingly join King Jesus' army of the witnesses of the resurrection, and then love and serve your neighbor. One more thing here, and then we'll, we'll close. Right. Not only is Jesus this king who loves and rules over his enemies, but he's also a compassionate priest. Because how does he turn his enemies into friends? It's because he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is one of the weirdest statements in the Bible. But it's beautiful. Because right. who was Melchizedek? Melchizedek was an Old Testament king in Genesis 14. You hear about him once, and you don't hear about him again until Psalm 110. And in Genesis 14, you remember Abraham? He goes all Liam Neeson from Taken and gathers his SEAL team of servants, and they go to war against five kings who's kidnapped his nephew Lot, and they go to rescue him. And Abraham must have been a fierce warrior because they won the battle, and they're coming back and when Abraham and his servants they come, uh, they end up meeting this guy named Melchizedek. And he's a, a local king. Uh, he's also, it says, a priest. He's a king and a priest. This is unusual. Right? And so it says that Abraham ties to this guy. They recognize that Melchizedek was greater. He was a priest king. He's better than Abraham. And we have no idea who he is historically. But he's a picture of what Jesus would be like, a king and a priest. And Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he was also the king of the city of Salem, so he's a king of peace. Right, this is a picture of what Jesus would be. But this is, this is what I hope you see this morning is, not only is Jesus a conquering king, but he's a compassionate priest. Which is a whole other sermon, but I'll, I'll keep it short. Jesus claims infinite power and authority, but he also rules with perfect love and compassion. Because you know what a priest's main job was? It was to represent God's sinful people, God's enemies, in the presence of a holy God. Sinners need a, represent a representative to come into God's presence. And when the Messiah says, is said to be a, a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, he's not only a king with access to God's presence, he's also a priest who then gets to represent you permanently in God's presence. Which means, as a Christian, you have someone always in heaven who is for you, who's praying for you, 
who has all the power that you, you can imagine, and now he's using it for you. Right. So you're coming to Jesus with your shame, and you're saying, I'm just a terrible human being. I hate myself. I'll never forgive myself. Um, Jesus comes alongside of you as the king priest and say, look in the heavenly places and look and see where your life is. It's with me right here, not in the depths of despair, but in heaven itself, right in God's presence. Loved as Jesus is loved, honored as Jesus is honored, and he is now praying for you, rooting for you, and promising to never leave you nor forsake you. And this priest knows what your life is like. Hebrews 2, Jesus had to be made like us in every respect, to be a faithful high priest, to make a sacrifice for our sins so that when he himself has suffered when tempted so he can help us when we're tempted. Not only is Jesus God, but he rules and reigns with a deep understanding of what it's like to be you <laughs> with your temptations, your struggles, your war, your battles. See, Jesus is king and priest. Do you have somebody who loves you like that? Someone who moves towards you when you're being uh, foolish and weak, when you're at your worst. Right? See, this is the argument. Jesus asks one question, and it forced us to say, who are, who are you, Jesus? And you're better than I can imagine. You're fully human, just like me, but you're a divine king and priest who loves me more than I can, I can imagine. And I don't deserve that kind of love because I was your enemy. So how do you respond to that? Well, I'm just going to tell you, this takes time. Right? Any argument, I don't, I don't know, I don't think I've ever been in an argument where I've changed someone's mind on the spot. Right? Questions plant seeds to get people to think about it later. And Jesus is the ultimate question. So if you're trying to understand Christianity, who Jesus is, listen to his questions. Come back. You can't hear everything all in one, one time. Grab a Christian friend, ask them questions. Uh, let them be a, a friend that's willing to ask you questions. All right. But for us as Christians, this is how you respond to Jesus' argument. Look at who's on the throne. Jesus, the king and priest. The one who lived for you, the one who died for you, the one who reigns for you, who intercedes for you, who's governing for you. He promises to give you everything you need to withstand temptation and even to obey with a heart that loves him. So go and wrestle with the real Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures, the one who is not a watertight argument, but a watertight person. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for...